On April 4th, 1971, nine months after they had begun their work to solve Aurelio Pache's problematique, Dana and Dennis Meadows and their fellow MIT teammates arrived at the exclusive Signori Club on the banks of the Ottawa River in Montebello, Canada to present their preliminary findings. This was the first time all of the 50 or so international members of the Club of Rome had assembled together since their meeting the previous year in Bern. Jay Forrester too had made room in his schedule for the trip. The MIT team had packed with them cases full of documents detailing all their research into mankind's interconnected problems. Poverty, health, nutrition, land use, resource depletion, pollution. They included detailed printouts of the various scenarios produced by their high-tech mainframe computer and lists of all the many scientists and experts they had met with to exchange knowledge and gain feedback on their results. As Dennis would state at that closed-door meeting, every expert they had spoken with so far, except perhaps for some economists, tended to agree with their findings. Indeed, some were even more pessimistic about mankind's ability to change trajectory and achieve a sustainable equilibrium society than the young scientists from MIT. According to Dana's diary of that day, after many technical presentations by their team, Jay Forrester made his own remarks to the assembled members of the Club of Rome. He supported the team's findings and emphasised that in order to solve the problematique, the Club of Rome must convince governments to accept limits to growth before Earth imposed its own limits on us. I waited breathlessly for the distinguished members of the Club of Rome to take up this challenge and think through its political and social implications, wrote Dana. The club members listened politely, spoke kind words for Dana, and went back to their discussion of the world's problems as if each was unrelated to all the others and as if there were no limits. As they took upon each problem, they called on growth to solve it. Energy shortages? We need more oil discoveries, more nuclear power. Poverty? More economic growth. Hunger? More food production. Urban slums? More housing. Pollution? More economic growth so we can afford pollution control. Jay Forrester liked to say the members were proposing simple solutions to complex problems, not realising that on a finite planet, the solution to one problem may be the trigger of another. That was when Dana first realised that the problem was not recognising the Earth's limits, but as she later wrote, the ideology of endless growth itself as a solution to postponing limits more or less indefinitely. Back at MIT the next day, our frustrated team met, recalled Dana. They didn't get it we said. At stake was not just the legacy of their work, but to Dana, the future of humanity. As she later wrote, part of me was still in the villages of India and in the deserts and the remnants of forest and the choking cities. I was trying to ensure that the future would be decent for the people there and people everywhere. For the life of me, I couldn't see what was wrong with that. Their contract with the Club of Rome called for a book based on their model. They had been working on a technical report, as Dana put it, documenting every equation in the meticulous format that Jay Forrester drummed into his students. But that failure to convince the Club of Rome meant the end of that project. It meant there would be no new institute for them in Switzerland to develop the policy recommendations they hoped the Club of Rome's A-list members would take to world governments. Dana was not giving up. She was not only a hotshot scientist, but a talented writer. During her travels, she had filled six journals with short stories and musings on her adventures. She decided to write a report to the Club of Rome. Not the technical report, but, as she put it, 
a staple in the upper corner essay, reinforcing their findings. We thought that clarity and perhaps some repetition were all that would be needed, she recalled. We didn't understand that what we'd witnessed would be an example of what we would encounter all over the world. The inability of people to hear a message that questions one of their deepest assumptions. The responses that came back were a foreshadowing of what the world's reaction would be, wrote Dana. Some members of the club were elated. I I think it could be extremely pleasant. We're not suggesting a deterioration of material standards as being necessary to an extent which should in fact frighten many people. Uh, Many things can be organised a great deal better materially now. For example, the cluttering of cities with cars. But I think that the world has the possibilities with a little better distribution and organisation of providing a decent life with flexibility and freedom for people. But with enormous possibilities of leisure, social development, artistic development, I think it could easily be a much, much richer life than we have today. That was Alexander King, co-founder of the Club of Rome and at the time director of the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. Yet other members of the club were horrified. One of the most negative reactions came from British economist Jeremy Bray. He called their work naive and complained that technology had not been given the treatment it deserved. I do not think minor emendations would put the report into a form in which I could agree with the conclusions, he wrote. But what struck Dana most was that nearly all members of the Club of Rome assumed that the report was not to them, but to the world. They began to visualise how the world would react, she wrote when it was released with their imprimatur. Dana had set out simply to distill the essence of the complex body of work she and her team members had tried, but failed to convey in Montebello, hoping that with some clarity and repetition, as she put it, she could change their minds. But she now found herself engaged in an intellectual battle with these men of the world, some of whom saw their report as a means to finally corral world leaders into action. Others, who feared the club's elite reputation was about to be ruined by the work of these idealistic young scientists. On my desk, their comments piled up, recalled Dana, and I frantically tried to respond to them in further drafts. Dana's report grew to the length of a short paperback, though some, like Bray, could not be satisfied with the changes. Aurelio Pache was sold. It is so obvious, in a way, so simple to... To consider that we cannot uh, continually and exponentially go as we are doing now, nothing in the world, nothing in life uh, goes continuously. According to Dana, as far as he was concerned, this report, not the technical report, nor any second phase in Switzerland, this was what he'd been waiting for. The following summer, the United Nations was planning its first ever conference on the environment in Stockholm. Every world leader would be there and Aurelio wanted this report in their hands. Dana later wrote how Aurelio had said in one of his urgent phone calls from Rome or New York or Buenos Aires that he wanted 5,000 copies quickly. And he wanted Dana and Dennis to organise publication. Now, the rush to publish a non-peer-reviewed report may have sounded rather risky, but a chance to get their findings in the hands of decision-makers in Stockholm was not something they could easily ignore. The conference was still one year away and their 400-page technical report was more or less complete. They envisaged Dana's little book wouldn't be published until long after the academic tome had received the rubber stamp of peer review. Even Aurelio's insistence that it be published as a report to and not by the Club of Rome 
did not cause them to rethink. Several months before they had presented to the Club of Rome in Canada, Dennis had taken a research trip to Washington to a conference organised by Lester Brown, founder of the Overseas Development Council, who would later become a renowned figure in the environmental movement. At dinner that evening, Dennis found himself sat next to the charming, keen-witted Washington publisher, Donald R. Lesh. There's not a lot about Don's backstory in the public domain, possibly because he was a spy. Only a few years older than Dana, Don Lesh had been working at the US Embassy in Moscow in the late 60s when he was expelled on espionage charges. In 1970, he would come to sit on Nixon's National Security Council before resigning just months later in protest at the US invasion of Cambodia, the same invasion that Dana had been disgusted to learn of on her return home from India. With partner Bill Watts, also a former spy, Don had formed Potomac Associates, whose stated goal was to conduct, quote, non-partisan research to heighten public understanding on significant contemporary problems of national and international significance. However, it's debatable as to how bipartisan they were able to be. Their names later turned up on Nixon's infamous enemies list. When Aurelio said he needed a book and fast, Dennis gave Don a call. He loved it. We were deeply impressed by the significance of the study and the remarkable clarity of exposition for such an intrinsically complex piece of research, he wrote. In November 1971, Dennis signed a contract with Potomac. Publication in the normal fashion for Potomac Associates meant free copies for selected policymakers, Dana recalled. She had presumed Aurelio's 5,000 copies would mainly be sent to government administrators until she got a phone call from Don Lesh telling her that her book would be sent to the heads of states of all nations, all members of European parliaments and the US Congress, all United States governors, all ambassadors to Washington and to the United Nations and key journalists around the world. I almost dropped the phone, she recalled. From that moment on, wrote Dana in her memoir, Aurelio called, cajoled, arranged, suggested, pushed, persuaded, until six months later, The Limits to Growth was published in the glare of international attention. Aurelio stirred up much of that attention. Potomac Associates stirred up the rest. Each of you who accepted our invitations should have received a copy of the Club of Rome MIT study as contained in the Potomac Associates book, Limits to Growth. To assure widest distribution of the ideas in the study, Potomac has sent complimentary copies of the book to a wide range of individuals, both in and out of governments, in the United States and in other countries. There was one problem. Their technical report had yet to make it through peer review. In their excitement about Dana's book, the MIT team had underestimated the time it would take to find academics who could decipher the novel science of systems dynamics. But Aurelio, Don and Potomac Associates had already set the wheels in motion. By spring 1972, Dana's book was ready to hit the shelves. In lieu of a technical report, Dennis agreed to present their findings at a small gathering of scientists in Washington. On behalf of the MIT team, I'd like to say that we're very pleased to have this opportunity to meet with you this morning. When we first mentioned the possibility of coming to Washington to talk about the project, I envisioned in my mind an informal gathering of 30 or 40 people around a table. At least, that's what Don Lesh had told him. But the well-connected former spook had somewhat bigger plans. 
Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Let me say how very pleased we are to welcome our distinguished guests here today. This is the first full-dress U.S. presentation of an 18-month study of global limits to growth by an international team of 17 scientists at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology under the direction of Dr. Dennis L. Meadows. We must have looked absurdly young, Dana recalled, of that day on March 2nd, 1972, when she and Dennis and their MIT teammates took to the podium of the Smithsonian Institute in Washington. In the audience were some 250 congressmen, senators, ambassadors, industrialists, and of course scientists, plus several radio and television news crew. Let me introduce now Dr. Dennis Meadows, member of the MIT faculty and assistant professor of management and system dynamics. Dennis. Well, good morning. During the last year, a group of us at MIT, the principal members of which are with me here today, have been looking at the exponential growth of our global social and economic system. We've been attempting to understand what causes population and capital growth over the long term and where they may be leading us. We've been led on the basis of this work to five basic conclusions. There are physical limits to growth which, given current trends, are very likely to be encountered even during the lifetime of our children. Second, the most likely outcome of running into these limits if we continue to ignore them and instead base our short-term policies on the assumption of continued growth is that we'll overshoot those limits and collapse, that there will be an uncontrolled decline both in population and industrial capacity. That won't take place at the same time around the world. It will certainly take different forms. It will be more or less severe in different societies depending on what happens between now and then and on the level of industrialization but in each case it's likely to be extremely traumatic. The third conclusion is that we appear to have a viable alternative to this outcome, one in which population and material production could be brought into balance with a finite environment and with our resources. The fourth conclusion is that it's realistically going to take a period of 50 years, 100 years or more to reach that alternative in an orderly fashion. And finally, and I think this is extremely important, Every year we delay beginning to form our goals and moving towards them makes an orderly transition to this stable situation much more difficult and it decreases our ultimate options. The first to react to Dennis's presentation was Elliot Richardson, Secretary of State for Health and Education and one of President Nixon's closest members of Cabinet. Secretary of HEW, Elliot Richardson, has kindly consented to make some remarks at this time. Elliot? Thank you very much, Mr. Reed, Dr. Meadows, ladies and gentlemen. I can say one thing very clearly and very emphatically, and that is that I believe all of us, all of us in the United States, and I think indeed every world citizen, are indebted to the Club of Rome. The study is too thoughtful too thorough, too significant, and the consequences of ignoring its implications too disastrous if we should be 
wrong in underestimating them. The team could hardly have hoped for a better endorsement. And these were not just empty words. Shortly after the conference, his office announced a public inquiry into limits to growth in the United States. It seemed like their gamble to publish the book had paid off. All the late nights and weekends doing research in the lab, Dana's months of endless writing and rewriting to convince the elite members of the Club of Rome, or at least some of them, that what they had to say was not stupid and naive, but profound and urgent. Aurelio's pulling in of every connection to every leader he had ever made in his decades of doing business around the world. And finally, the ex-spy Don Lesh's slick propaganda campaign that had brought the great and good of politics, industry, science and media to Washington that day. The richest country in the world was considering shifting its goal from undifferentiated economic growth to ensuring first and foremost that its population would have the means for long-term prosperity in a stable and healthy environment. The only question now was, how would the world outside react? Across the Charles River at MIT in Cambridge, a team of scientists tackled the problem. They built a global computer model on paper to measure long-term trends. They found, and this is the core of their startling book, The Limits to Growth, that the way things are going now, the planet can support us for less than 100 years. It may be nearer 50. This is Edward P. Morgan, ABC News, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thanks to Don's extensive PR efforts, the team made that evening's primetime news. And the next day, many of the leading titles had their stories splashed across the front pages. Mankind warned to curb growth or face catastrophe, ran one headline. Will growth kill humanity? To grow and to die. Prepare to meet thy doom. Farewell to civilization. Would anyone hear the awful truth? With few exceptions, most had gone for the apocalyptic headline, with hardly any taking the time to read or report on their solution for an equilibrium world. It was as Club of Rome member Jeremy Bray had warned. They were being branded as doomsayers. One of the fashions of our time is intellectual pessimism, scholarly predictions that the apocalypse waits just around the corner. The most fashionable recent piece of pessimism is a report from the computers of MIT saying that economic growth must stop. Well, the report is cockeyed. We've got real things to worry about, but the much hoopla report of the Club of Rome is not one of them. Economic growth and technical advance are not the villains of our future. They're the heroes that can save us. I'm Howard K. Smith. Good night. Systemic sensationalizing and trivializing is how Dana would later describe much of the media reaction. The next morning, the team got up early to watch Dennis appear on the Today Show. First, a dog food commercial. Then, three minutes as Professor Dennis Meadows tells about the impending collapse of the industrial economy. Then a quick cut to demonstration by the British darts throwing champion, Dana recalled. We shouldn't have been shocked. Most of us grew up in America's fast food, fast information culture, but we were. Despite innumerable requests, they decided to turn down further media appearances, expecting all the attention to soon subside and for the real work of policymaking to begin. But that weekend, the opinion columns came out. Don Lesh and Aurelio Pucci had ignited a global fuse of interest in their work, and not everyone was happy with their message. Particularly surprising were the bitter and emotional attacks by many economists, recalled Jay Forrester. We thought the book lay outside their area of interest, until we realised that it threatened the underlying belief that growth can go on forever. 
writing in his regular Newsweek column, Yale economist Henry Wallach and future governor of the Federal Reserve called it a piece of irresponsible nonsense. The Economist magazine echoed his sentiments, stating that the Meadows report represents the high watermark old-fashioned nonsense. Such was the need to set the record straight, it seems, that Henry Wallach held a talk for the entire Society of American Newspaper Editors in Washington, where he accused Dr Meadows of, quote, using inappropriate methods to arrive at his results. Despite having never reviewed their model, he constantly told those gathered that, quote, they were most certainly wrong, but that even in the very unlikely case the team were even remotely right, the prescription would still be wrong. The problems of levelling off growth, he argued, are not for our century nor the next. And if the environment can't take that much growth, there will be plenty of time for adjustment. The limitations imposed by the environment make themselves felt long before the ultimate limits are reached. Perhaps even more surprising than the backlash from economists was that of certain members of the scientific old guard, who tended to view scientific progress as synonymous with technological progress as the main solution to mankind's problems. One such was Philip Abelson, editor of renowned journal Science. In his comments at the Smithsonian presentation, he took aim at the team's assumptions about the growing problem of pollution. I've talked to a number of the people from chemical industry and and, uh, uh, they're busy about the job and they've found in many instances that uh, their problems are just problems of poor housekeeping. In fact, instead of pollution exponentially increasing in the United States, I believe that in the year 1971 there was actually less pollution in the United States than there was in 1970. So uh, I don't see this this matter of exponentially increasing pollution as being a, a, a major factor. Yet in his weekend editorial, Abelson went far further. To bolster his arguments, he quoted as fact accusations made by economists like Wallach. Never mind that hardly a reputable economist can be found who thinks these projections amount to anything more than a fascinating exercise in model making. Thanks to the Club of Rome's international reach, their critics were not confined to America. The editor of renowned British journal Nature, John Maddox, a chemist, titled his own critique of the limits to growth another whiff of doomsday. He even published a book, The Doomsday Syndrome. Just like his counterpart, Philip Abelson, Maddox found himself aligned with the country's leading economists. In several interviews, he was joined by the influential member of the UK's Royal Commission of Environmental Pollution, economist Wilfred Beckerman. A few months following publication of their book, Beckerman was awarded the chair in economics at University College London. Just as Wallach had felt the need to assure journalists of their wrong and inappropriate model, Beckerman dedicated his entire public acceptance speech to criticising the quote, implausible assumptions and ludicrous model of limits to growth. Well, I think the conclusions of the study are completely wrong. The criticisms eventually made their way to Jeremy Wisner president of MIT, whose office was within weeks inundated with letters of complaint and calls for the team's dismissal. Jay Forrester had one theory. Part of the criticism, he wrote, seems to come from people who have been working on the same issues but have been caught off guard by the rapid progress of the work here and the interest shown in it. Some are unhappy because the conclusions are contrary to their hopes and expectations. Others simply do not understand. Dana later described how, as the critiques rolled in, 
the team took to sketching the connections and feedbacks across the walls in the lab. The scientists used The Economist to bolster their case, which in turn gave credence to The Economist, whether or not they had read or understood their work. This in turn boosted the case for those who stood to lose out most from ending growth. Here is Dennis Meadows talking about the actions of one major oil company in response to Dana's book. On February 17th, there was a very unusual advertisement in the New York Times. It was placed by a large oil company and it appeared under the heading, Growth is not a four-letter word. The advertisement suggested that those who are advocating an end to economic growth were simply elitists who wanted to kick down the ladder of economic progress they themselves had just climbed. But not all corporations rejected their conclusions outright. Shortly after the book was published, the MIT team received an invitation to meet with the heads of the great and good of American industry. I was contacted by the president of an organization called Business International, which is a trade association of the biggest corporations in the world. We had the president of IBM, the president of Remington Rand. We had 40 or 50 people of that sort. And their attitude was, you're right, but what can we do about it? Given the political and competitive situation, one of them said, do we have to walk out on the end of this plank and jump off? Or is there some alternative? The message was simple. Businesses cannot be expected to save the world. If humanity is to survive, politicians will need to change the rules. The good news for the MIT team was that changing the rules was exactly what the organiser of the Stockholm Environment Conference, Maurice Strong, had in mind. A former Canadian oil magnate, here he is talking about his motivations a few months before the Stockholm Conference. This is National Public Radio in Washington. Today's luncheon guest speaker is Maurice Strong, a United Nations Undersecretary General. He is the director of the upcoming World Conference on the Environment. And then I have to explain to my friends in the business community why I have uh, uh, taken an interest in this subject. I have to tell them that when thinking of the future of my children and their children, I believe that they're going to need more than money to survive in this society. As Aurelio had hoped, Dana's book had got Strong's attention and he had taken their findings to heart. In the case of the MIT Club of Rome project, uh, this report on this was submitted as one of the basic documents to the conference. I believe you will see that our conference documents do reflect this. They do not reflect, of course, acceptance of all of the conclusions, but they do point up, in a very real sense, the need for a a, a redirection of many of man's activities and a, and a, a reorientation, in particular, of the patterns of growth in the high-growth, high-technology, high-pollution societies. But with the press interests rolling on without them, as Dana would later describe it, as the UN Environment Conference approached, controversy over her book only intensified. Good evening and welcome to The Advocates. Tonight, from Stockholm, specifically our question for debate this evening is this. Should the developed nations limit their economic growth? A study which has been denounced as fallacious by almost every qualified analyst in the Western world, including the reviewers of both the New York Times and Britain's famed economists. Everyone is talking about it, wrote Don Lesh in a memo to Dana from Stockholm as the conference was getting underway. Though he added, few appear to have read it. To ensure world leaders did not take the critics' word for it, he wrote how he'd taken to handing copies out to passing delegates. Though full of laudable aspirations, the resulting Stockholm Declaration contained not even a suggestion that the rich world should curb consumption or growth. 
Indeed, it specifically stated that there was a general agreement that a, quote, philosophy of no growth was completely unacceptable. Even though the MIT team never implied economic growth would stop immediately, especially not in poorer nations. Maybe we were naive, Dana later wrote. Maybe we did want to save the world. For the life of me, I couldn't see what was wrong with that. Their hopes of making leaders do what they thought was necessary to save humanity were fading. But they still had Elliot Richardson's promised inquiry into limits to growth in the United States. At the time, America was home to less than a tenth of the world population, but was responsible for half of all the logging, mining, refining and related pollution. If the United States were to change course, it could help chart the world in a new direction. Richardson's inquiry was due in just a few months' time. To counter their critics, it was vital they published a technical report without further delay. After much searching, a team of policy researchers at the University of Sussex in England stated an interest in their model. But when they attempted to replicate and test the MIT team's work, they came to altogether different conclusions. If you check what happens if you vary all your assumptions together, then uh, I understand from the uh, science policy research unit at Sussex, who have actually been checking your model, the catastrophe disappears altogether. The point about systems dynamics models is precisely that. It is a model of a dynamic, constantly changing system. One couldn't force all the variables to move in lockstep, since that would be unrealistic. The Sussex team had ignored the interactions between the various parts. They had applied, according to the Meadows response, inappropriate methods and micro-reasoning to macro-problems. In the following months, further rebukes followed. One came from a chemical engineer from McGill University named Thomas Boyle, the same engineer who had snuck a draft copy out of the MIT lab. Boyle had found a typo, which he claimed changed the outcome. In fact, it had no impact on the results, a point they could easily prove. But their old nemesis, nature editor John Maddox, published Boyle's article. It led to another flood of headlines claiming that the world had been saved by a decimal point. Another attack came from a young and at the time relatively unknown economist named William Nordhaus. Like the Sussex team, he had attempted to replicate Jay Forrester's first model. And like the Sussex team, he came to wildly different conclusions, which he laid out in his polemic Measurements Without Data. Jay Forrester wrote a carefully worded rebuttal. Nordhaus had made the elementary mistake of taking each part of the model separately, but systems dynamics analyses all the parts together. Not just the relationship between food and health, for example, but how our health impacts our ability to work, to earn money and consume, and how it all influences the amount of energy and resources we have, which in turn influences food and health and so on. But in an unprecedented breach of academic protocol, the Economics Journal refused to publish Forrester's response. When Elliot Richardson's inquiry was finally published in January 1973, Instead of an inquiry into limiting growth in the United States, it became an investigation into the possibility that the book The Limits to Growth was, quote, wrong in its conclusions. In his foreword to that report, Richardson expressed frustration with the results. Current environmental problems inevitably force us to trade off some economic output to maintain and improve non-monetary but equally real environmental quality, he wrote. I had hoped that some breakthrough might be possible, he continued but these papers argue that that is unlikely. He ended his statement by inviting further research onto the problem because, quote, these matters are so important. 
Sadly, Elliot Richardson would not oversee any further research into limits to growth in America. Shortly after his inquiry, he was moved to the Department of Defence, appointed Attorney General, and later that year famously resigned rather than do Nixon's bidding to fire the special prosecutor in the Watergate scandal. The team's technical report, complete with evidence that addressed all those lies, half-truths and misconceptions about their work, finally passed peer review in 1974, two years after Dana's book had kicked up such a storm. Yet this time, its publication went unnoticed. By then, at least in the United States, the political discourse had moved on to more pressing issues than the long-term survival of humanity. For some, especially those who had actually read their book, the oil and grain crisis of that year were signs our planet may already be entering overshoot. For others, proof we needed more, not less economic growth. The one salvo to fix all of humanity's ills just as the Club of Rome members had once believed. Yet, as unemployment rose and living standards crumbled, even the Club of Rome began to distance itself from their book. In 1975, co-founder Alexander King told journalists the club had been, quote, surprised and a little embarrassed to be associated with zero growth. By the end of the decade, a neoliberal ideology had taken hold. It was rooted in the ideals of individualism and free markets, and predicated on the assumption that economic growth was good, or even necessary, for human progress. There are no limits to growth and human progress when men and women are free to follow their dreams. And we were right. So how do you now live your life? Dana asked herself at the end of her memoir. In the course of just a few years, Dana had gone from being conscientious scientist and technologist on track for a Harvard fellowship to, along with Dennis and her teammates, a laughingstock among global elites. To boot, they had fallen foul of MIT, been more or less cut off from the Club of Rome and let down by their political leaders. They had also authored what would become a best-selling book, helping ignite a nascent environmental movement. More importantly, they had learned that on our current path, our finite planet's limits were likely to be reached far more quickly than almost everyone around them, and especially those in charge, were able or willing to see. So if they wanted to change the world, they realised they would have to go out and do it themselves. The work the team, and especially Dana and Dennis Meadows, undertook in the following decades around sustainable living, education, communication, advocacy as well as in the science of world models and systems dynamics, would help lay the groundwork for a new wave of economic thinking, grounded in the science of planetary limits and focused on genuine human progress. Thinking which now, more than 50 years after publication of The Limits to Growth, and with humanity now well into the ecological crisis they had tried to warn us of, is finally taking root. Of course, the period was not without its setbacks nor its tragedies. <laughs>